Good morning. We ask that you remain standing for the reading of God's word. We'll be in the book of Jonah in chapter 3 at the last verse and then continue through chapter 4. And then we will be going to Luke chapter 15. So if you have your Bibles, please turn to that. If not, we do have it on the screens on either side. And uh, please join me in the reading of God's word. Chapter 3, verse 10. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he could see what would come of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die, and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being a night and perished in a night. Should I, and should I not pity Nineveh, the great city in which there was more than 120,000 persons who did not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? Please turn into Luke chapter 15, and we'll be starting in verse 25. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all, all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. This is the reading of God's word. Please be seated. Why are stories so powerful? The book of Jonah is one of the strangest but most powerful in the Bible. It does not follow the mold of the rest of the prophets, where the prophet is the hero. He pronounces his judgments on Israel, the nations, or both, and God executes that judgment. Now, Jonah is very different. No, rather, Jonah is an anti hero, 
and he's meant to not be a good example for us. It is in this way that the book of Jonah is more reminiscent to Catcher in the Rye, Fight Club, or Sound and the Fury. Or in film or TV, Jonah would be a lot more similar to characters like Gordon Gecko, Walter White, Severus Snape, John Wick, or Han Solo. We're sympathetic to these characters and these stories because the stories themselves help us understand why the characters are so flawed and because we can often see parts of ourselves in them. We're also unsympathetic because we realized how flawed the characters are. Jonah is pretty messed up, and we're tempted to throw him under the bus. But I want you, I want you to see yourself in Jonah because I believe that that was the intent of the book itself, particularly for its original audience. Let me give you some background on the book, on Jonah, and on the original audience, so we can help translate from the there and then of that book to the here and now of today. So far in the Bible, Jonah's only shown up once. We don't know much about him, except that he was a prophet that was who lived about 750 to about 800 years before Jesus. Nineveh, the city, is called, in the text, an exceedingly great city. And also, in the text, it's called an evil city. It had 120,000 people and was one of the largest cities in the world during that time. It's located where modern-day Mosul, Iraq, is on the Tigris River. The city had a moat. It had an outer wall. It had an inner wall. It was on a major trade route. It had gardens, parks, squares, a large library, and even a zoo. It was probably where the Assyrians kept their plunder from conquered peoples. And the actual footprint of the city would be about twice the size of all four Disney parks here combined in terms of the size of the city. Tarshish. Tarshish was a location at least 2,000 miles away, probably in either Sardinia, Spain, or it might not have been a destination at all. It might have been used kind of like a colloquial reference, kind of like Timbuktu, such as Mike is going on an adventure to somewhere like Timbuktu. We don't know much about the timing of the original audience, but they were likely Jewish. It could have been Jonah's Jewish contemporaries or as late as about 300 years before Jesus. Either way, the book is confronting some pretty messed up things baked into how the Jews saw themselves as to how they saw other ethnicities around them. The book has seven characters, very simple. There's Jonah, there's the pagan men on the ship, there's the great fish, there's the pagan people of Nineveh, the pagan king of Nineveh, the plant, and the worm. From a really high altitude, here's what happens in the plot. In chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, God commissions Jonah to go and preach against the evil that is in Nineveh. In verses 3 and 4, Jonah disobeys, goes the exact opposite direction of Nineveh, and then by boat, and then God sends a great wind. The men on the ship call out to their gods first concerning that great storm. They cast lots. It falls on Jonah, whom they end up interrogating. They row against the storm. Then they call upon Jonah's god, ultimately consent to throw Jonah into the sea. 
And then they make a sacrifice and vows to Jonah's God. Then in chapter 2, we see that a great fish swallows Jonah for three days and nights. And during this time, Jonah prays a prayer of thanksgiving for God's mercy shown on him. Then in chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, God recommissions Jonah, and Jonah finally obeys and preaches to the people of Nineveh. So in verses 4 through 10 of chapter 3, the people of Nineveh emphatically repent, including the king, all the way down to the people and even the animals in the city, and God ends up relenting and showing them mercy and grace. Which leads to the final chapter, which is going to be the focus of our sermon today, And in chapter 4, verses 1 through 4, Jonah ends up responding to this. Jonah is enraged at God's mercy and prays an angry prayer to God where he says that he would rather be dead than than see God save the people of Nineveh. And then finally we get one last scene in verses 5 through 11 where Jonah exits the city, gains a view of the city, and hopes that God will still destroy it. God causes a plant to grow, over and shade Jonah, but then the next day God causes a worm to come and eat the plant. Jonah is so angered at the destruction of the plant that he wishes that he would die. God points out that Jonah has more pity on a single plant than the 120,000 people in Nineveh. That's the plot, high altitude. All right, so the book has a very interesting parallel structure It's important for us to understand this structure so that we can highlight what the writer is doing. And so this parallel structure highlights the differences between God's heart and Jonah's heart. And so what you see in chapter 1, 1 through 3, Jonah is commissioned but then runs away. But then in chapter 3, 1 through 3, Jonah is recommissioned by God and ends up preaching. Then in the second thing there, the second uh, row, we see the response to God's work, the response by pagans. So in chapter 1, 4 through 16, the pagan sailors, they fear God, they offer sacrifices, and they make vows. And then in Nineveh, we see that um, the people in Nineveh, the whole city, king, all the way down to the people, all the way down to the animals, there's repentance. Then there's this parallelism parallelism between chapter 2 and chapter 4. And we see in chapter 2 that Jonah is very, very thankful for God's mercy on him. But then we see in chapter 4, Jonah is very, very angry at God's mercy to Nineveh. So in this way, the parallel structure is that basically chapters 1 and 3 go side by side, and chapters 2 and 4 go side by side. And the purpose of this is to form a stark contrast or juxtaposition that, again, goes back to contrasting Jonah's heart with God's heart. We're going to see that here throughout this sermon. Here's my big idea. Here's my main contention that I want to show to you. Jonah is a gospel for older brothers. Jonah is a gospel for older brothers. I promise you that I will unpack what I mean by that when we get to chapter 4 of the book. But first, I want to dive a little bit deeper into chapters 1, then 3, then 2, before we spend our lion's share in chapter 4. Starting in chapter 1, verse 1, it says this, 
Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went aboard to go with him to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Let's recap this. God speaks to Jonah in some fashion, some clear instructions to go to Nineveh to preach to it. Nineveh is both a great city, but also an evil one. Jonah clearly has an intense contempt for the people of Nineveh. In his defense, the Assyrians were a rather violent people and had some pretty messed up group of gods that they worshipped. Many of them had uh, places of worship in the actual city of Nineveh. Even so, it's frightening to do, to do so deliberately to disobey the direct commandment of God. Jonah goes on land, the opposite direction of Nineveh. Then he finds a boat going in the furthest direction known um, in, that, in that part of the world. And he does so using his own money to catch this ride. Quote, away from the presence of the Lord. Every one of us has a calling. All you need to do is look at Genesis 1, 26 through 28, or Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Genesis 1 tells us that we, have, we all have a calling on us to work, make culture, make families, and Jesus later expands and clarifies on that in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, when he, when he talks about our calling to make disciples. Therefore, work is worship and a calling. Therefore, making culture is worship and a calling. Therefore, marriage and parenting are worship and are a calling. Therefore, making disciples is worship and a calling. You're human beings. You're made in the image of God. And you were, you were made in the image of God um, our triune God, to work, to make culture, and make disciples. So, I ask you this question. Have you been running from a calling? Is God calling you to move into the life of somebody else? Does he keep putting some of the same folks kind of perpetually in front of you? Have you been ignoring what needs to be done to engage them? Are you running to a particular idol to self-medicate things that are going on in your life and your circumstances? These are good questions that the book encourages us to ask ourselves. Let's fast forward now to chapter 3. Chapter 3, remember? 1, 3, 2, 4. 1, 3, 2, 4. So in chapter 3, verse 1, it says, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. Well, this time Jonah actually obeys, preaches the really short message that God gave him, and surprise, the whole city ends up believing God, calls for a fast, and adorn themselves with sackcloth and ashes. The entire city does this, from the king all the way down to the animals. They repent of their evil ways and the violence of their hands. And so in chapter in chapter 3, verse 10, the text says, When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster he had said he would do them, and he did not do it. Consider this. 
in six different places in Scripture, Psalms, Proverbs, Matthew, Luke, James, and 1 Peter, the Bible repeats itself with basically the same identical verse. And it's this verse that says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Dwell on that for a moment. God loves to show mercy and grace to those who are humble. Oh, that God would give us that kind of humility. One of the things in this world that I dislike the most is when God humbles me. One of the things in this world that I love the most is when God humbles me. Nobody likes being cut down, cut open to be worked on. But this is sanctification, and we need it. Don't resist the work of the Holy Spirit on your life. If the murderous pagans in Nineveh can be brought to sackcloth and ashes with an eight-word sermon from a guy who hates them, we've got some work to do with the quickness with which we repent. All this leads us to our main point for chapters 1 and 3, and that's this. God shows mercy to the humble and repentant regardless of ethnicity or wickedness. God shows mercy to the humble and repentant regardless of ethnicity or wickedness. Now, backtrack with me to chapter 2. Jonah prays in verses 2 through 9 a prayer of thanksgiving to God for saving him through the great fish. In verse 2, he's distressed, crying out from the depths. In verses 3 through 7, he acknowledges the direness of his situation. Deep water, out of sight, hemmed in the pit, life fading away. And then in verses 8 and 9, he says this, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Now, hold on to this thought of Jonah's gratitude to God for God's mercy shown to him. Hold on to that thought. This brings us to chapter 4, which is the meat of our sermon here today starting in chapter 3, verse 10, through the end of the book in 4.11. Starting in 3.10, again, it says this, When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, that's Nineveh, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. God chooses to give grace to the repentant people of Nineveh. But how does Jonah respond? The text says, it displeased Jonah exceedingly. It's hard for me to underestimate to you how upset Jonah is. The original text is quite emphatic. Jonah is incensed. Jonah is enraged. He is beside himself. He goes on in verses 2 and 3 to say this, O Lord, is this not what I said When I was yet in my country. That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you were a gracious 
God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. So check this out. Jonah begins arguing with God. He's saying back to God, Dear God, I ran from this assignment in Timbuktu because I knew you were a very merciful God and that if I obeyed you, that you would end up saving these filthy people. So please go ahead and kill me now because I would rather die than see you show mercy to these people. Mm. We know that the Assyrians were a pretty violent people, and they were in geographic proximity to the northern tribes of Israel. We don't really know what personal bad blood there might have been between Jonah and these folks. But this is some professional-level racism. Jonah would rather die than see God be merciful And that's why he ran to begin with. Because he correctly knew that if he was obedient, that God would show mercy to the people of Nineveh. Why is this book in your Bible? One of the reasons this book is in your Bible is because ethnocentrism and racism are major problems. It's a major problem because our God has purposed from eternity past to gather for himself a global church of disciples from every tongue, tribe, people, and nation who are all made in his image. Therefore, simply put, racism is an assault on two things. First, it's an assault on the image of God and other humans. And then secondly, it's an assault on God's eternal divine bride, his church. When we mock, deride, disparage, look down upon, harm, or deal unjustly with other ethnicities, we're assaulting the image of God, and we mock God's entire game plan in history. This isn't just swastika tattoos and white hoods. There are two kinds of sins in the Bible, sins of commission and sins of omission. Sins of commission are things that you do, but you shouldn't, such as lying, stealing, murder, these kinds of things. Sins of omission are things that you should do, but you don't, such as the story of the Good Samaritan, when the priest and the Levite had the ability and the means to help the man who was robbed on the road to Jericho, but didn't. So, God responds to the irate Jonah with the following incisive question. Do you do well to be angry? Do you do well to be angry? I love when God asks questions in the scripture. Think about that. Do you do well to be angry? This kind of anger is so unhealthy 
and counterproductive. It is toxic. It is cancer. If you allow it to take root in you, it will poison you, and it will ruin your relationships. If you are prone to this kind of anger and rage, I beg you to get some help. For the sake of the witness of Christ, for the effectiveness of the gospel, for the sake of your family and those around you, don't lie to yourself. Own the problem and get some help. If you've been battling this inside your soul, or worse, if this kind of anger is spilling over onto the people around you, I beg you, talk to Jim or me. We'll get you help. We'll help you get started on a journey towards emotional health and the fruit of the Spirit. So here we have Jonah. Praise God for his grace to me. And then later that week, kill me, God, because of your grace to them. (laughs) We get one more scene. Jonah goes outside the city, hoping that God will destroy all these people, and so he can have a front row seat. He finds shade for himself, and God graciously causes a plant to rapidly grow and provide shelter from the harsh elements. But then the next day, God causes a worm to destroy the plant, and God causes a really hot wind to pummel Jonah to the point where he gets faint. As a result, Jonah again says, It is better for me to die than to live. God replies, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? Jonah replies, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. God replies, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. With that, the book just ends. It's the divine mic drop. (laughs) So, So let's recap this. Jonah has his popcorn out in the shade, hoping for the divine wrath on Nineveh. God further provides him comfort from a plant, but then takes it away the next day. Jonah wants to die because he's ticked about the dead plant and being walled by the hot wind. God points out to Jonah that he has more pity for a single day-old plant that he didn't help make or grow than what he does from a city of 120,000 people. Now, do I really need to point out how messed up that is? Jonah has infinitely greater empathy for a dead plant than he does for 120,000 people. As if that wasn't enough, God pokes Jonah with this final clause and also much cattle. Did you see what God did there? He sees that Jonah has some respect for the non-human world in his pity on the plant. So he guts Jonah by reminding him that there are still some good animals. (laughs) Jonah had a subhuman view of the people of Nineveh. 
Jonah had a subhuman view of the people of Nineveh. So much so that God had to appeal to Jonah's empathy for livestock in order to reveal the foolishness of his heart to the original audience of the book. The abrupt ending on a question is meant to force the listener or reader to dwell on that question. There's some ways in which this sermon is a continuation or really a kind of prequel to Jim's sermon back in March on the prodigal son, which he had entitled The Two Lost Sons. The parallels between these two stories are significant. You have two main characters. One is self-righteous, the other is really sinful. The self-righteous character is indignant at the sinful character and upset at mercy and grace shown to the sinful character. Now, each story has a different setting. In the first, an older and younger brother, and ours, set against the ethnic tensions between Jews and Assyrians. But the outcome is the same. God chooses to be merciful towards humble, repentant people, and this results in anger from the prideful and self-righteous character. As Chris read before, in, starting in Luke fifteen twenty-five and onward, I want to read this again to you, because I think it's instructive for us. Now his older son was in the field, and he came and drew near to the house. He heard music and dancing, and he called to one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to them, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him? And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. All this leads to our main point for chapters 2 and 4, and it's this. God's grace to others deeply offends older brothers. God's grace to others deeply offends older brothers. Jonah should be both good news and bad news to us. The good news is that God delights to give grace to all the nations. The bad news is that God delights to give grace to all the nations, and this might offend you. Are you aware that more than half the Christians in the world are in the southern hemisphere? Are you aware that the overwhelming majority of these Christians are not white or European? 
Many of them live in countries you might not like for various geopolitical reasons, ethnic tensions, bad blood, or who knows, whatever re other reasons. I guarantee you, if you take a globe and you spin it, close your eyes, point, and if you hit land, there are either believers there, or if there aren't any yet, there will be. Think about that. The dehumanization of image bearers, which is what Jonah did, treating the people of Nineveh as subhuman, the dehumanization of image bearers has had disastrous consequences in our own country's history. Man-stealing, chattel slavery, slavery, slavery codes that prohibited education, allowed for rape, beating, uh, mutilation, branding, forced breeding, killing, codes that kept slave children as property, codes that prohibited baptism from conferring any change in slave status, prohibitions to integrated worship, no due process, legal consideration as property, post-emancipation, you have no voting, Jim Crow, property redlining, convict leasing, peonage, sharecropping, lynching, laws against interracial marriage, disparities in criminal sentencing, eugenics, and abortion. Dehumanization results in disastrous consequences. It isn't just the Holocaust or communism from centuries past in distant lands where these kinds of evils have been perpetrated. Are you aware that Pulse wasn't even the largest mass killing in Orlando history? Historians estimate that on election day in 1920, between 50 to 60 black persons were massacred after some black persons attempted to lawfully vote. The mob that perpetrated this violence was led by the former chief of police of the city of Orlando. Or did you know that Division Street downtown was named as such because of laws on the books for decades, making it illegal for black persons to go west of Division Street after sundown. This law ended up forever changing the very skyline of our city and was very influential as to where Interstate 4 ended up being eventually built. Think about that for a moment. Our skyline is the product of black-on-white racism. <laughs> I've lived here for over 30 years before I even learned these things because they don't get talked about and justice has never been served. All right, here's the crazy maker with Jonah. Jonah makes zero doctrinal errors in the entire book. He never says a single thing that's inaccurate about God. He understands that the people of Nineveh deserve God's wrath he knows that God is merciful. He understands that the preached word is effective, and he preaches the message as it was delivered to him by God. Church, you can have antiseptically pure doctrine, but this does not guarantee that you will end up loving your neighbor as yourself. I cannot think of a single American theologian more brilliant, influential, and theologically sound than Jonathan Edwards. Yet, yet, 
The man owned as many as six slaves, both in the field and in his house, and owned at least one slave his entire lifetime. This man certainly had read Exodus 21.16, which says in plain text, quote, whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him. Whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him, shall be put to death. What in the world do you do with that? He had clear scripture in plain text telling him not only that what he was doing was wrong, but under the Mosaic law was a capital offense. Are you smarter than Edwards? Is your doctrine more tidy than Edwards? Are you better read than him? The answer is a clear and resounding no for all of us. Historians widely acknowledge that Edwards is the greatest thinker in all of American history. So church, right doctrine must lead to right living. Right doctrine must lead to right living. It is very well possible for you to have right doctrine and be horribly messed up. Edwards and Jonah serve as warnings to us, as do the entire book of James, the story of the prodigal son, the good Samaritan, the Hellenistic widows of Acts chapter 6, Peter's ethnocentrism in Galatians 2, all warn of the dangers of having the gospel only influence our brains and having this disconnect with our heart and our hands. How do we avoid these pitfalls? How do we love our neighbors as ourselves? It is the gospel. We cannot love our neighbors without the gospel. We must possess the gospel. But we need it to change our whole person. Our whole person. It must be the leaven that is kneaded into every nook and every cranny of our being. The gospel must not be sectioned off or confined to certain parts of our being. We must be consistent in loving the Lord with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And our neighbor as ourselves. The gospel must not just impact our thinking, but it must also impact how we emote and the actions that we take. Every one of us has disobeyed God's laws. This is deeply offensive to God. What did he do about that? Did he kill you? Did he imprison you? Did he punish you? No. He gave a member of his family, his only son, his friend for all eternity, sent him into our mess, had him forever take on a human body, obey all the laws that we never did, trade his obedience for your disobedience, die, and demonstrate his mastery over creation by resurrecting himself. This one-time sacrifice accomplished the salvation of God's entire kingdom and began the rolling back of the curse on all of creation. This work of Christ continues to be applied to his church today by the Holy Spirit. 
The gospel isn't this mere, temporary, one-time front door to the Christian faith. It is the A to Z of the Christian faith. We must further understand, feel, and act upon this glorious gospel. Nothing else can change us. But we are not redeemed to go and do nothing. We are redeemed that we might engage with gospel-motivated actions. Saving faith produces such fruit. Look at the vine and branches in John 15. Look at the book of James. Look at Acts 6 and the widows discriminated against. Look at Paul's confrontation of Peter in Galatians 2. Saving faith produces fruit that is consistent with God's character. It preaches the gospel in clear words to others, and it validates that gospel by neighborly love. So, Mike, why did you choose to preach this book? I'm glad you asked. The book of Jonah shows us God's empathy for the lost, and it shows us the urgency with which he pursues them. The book of Jonah shows us God's empathy for the lost and the urgency with which he pursues them. Church, part of the work that OGC has ahead is increasing our empathy for others And part of the work that we have ahead is increasing our urgency for the gospel. Part of empathy is listening, seeking understanding, and hurting with other people who are hurting. In our increasingly fractured society, empathy is lost and power is king. There is a way to influence without power. That way is the path of empathy. Think of how many people that Jesus ministered to them in their pain, out of his. Think of how critical Jesus was who ministered out of a paradigm of power and control. We also need increased urgency. Satan is at war with us, and we need to be increasingly in the game. There are thousands, literally thousands of people moving to Orlando every single week. And we are not planting churches proportional to the growth and expansion of our city. We cannot afford to sit back and rest on our reformed laurels. We have shovel and pickaxe work to do. I'm not sure if you're fully aware of how bad the situation in Orlando actually is. Understand this. One, Orlando is the ninth most unchurched city in our entire country. Here's what that means. There's only eight cities in America that have a higher percentage of people that don't go to church. Okay? Second. Orlando is the sixth most de-churched city in America. Here's what that means. That means only five cities in America have a higher percentage of people who used to go to church, but now don't. (laughs) We can't afford to be older brothers here. Not a single one of us knows who God's sheep are and who aren't. I am convinced that God has thousands and thousands of more people in Orlando who have just yet to hear the voice of the Good Shepherd and who will respond with repentance and faith. 
The question is this. Can we engage our neighbors with the good news of Christ's obedience for our disobedience and validate that message by out-neighboring our neighbors? Can we move into others' lives with empathy and urgency? The same empathy and urgency with which God pursued the, those that he redeemed in Nineveh. If unlikely and wicked Nineveh repented when an unwilling, racist, hate-filled prophet came and preached to them an eight-word sermon, how much more should we repent when the loving and willing Son of God came and preached his own life, death, and resurrection? How much more should we be encouraged to set aside our fear, prejudice, and anger, and urgently put on empathy, compassion, and gracious truth? Church, I believe we need a greater urgency for the gospel. We need greater empathy for the lost. And we need actions that are consistent with God's character. As I seek to grow in these things, will you join me? Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we pray for our city. Lord, you know that you are sovereign and in control. You are moving people to our city. The nations are here. Lord, we pray that you would come and change our hearts. Mature us in the ways that we need matured. Grow us in the ways that we need to grow. Lord, put, help us to put off our old man and our heart. And Lord, we pray that you would give us your heart. Lord, we believe that there is more work to be done here. And Lord, we, we ask you, we beseech you that you would let us be a part of seeing fruit and harvest here happen in our city. We love you and we need you. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.